0: Well, good evening. I'll give you a second chance on that. Take two. Good evening. Awesome. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. We're in the last chapter now. A couple more studies, and then we'll be making our way into 2 Peter. And this evening, I want to spend a little time just in verses 1 through 4, because Peter gives such good counsel about being willing to serve others. In fact, um, verses 1 through 11, before we get to the closing of the book, really, as a theme, are all about being willing to serve others. Now, of course, the, the, the theme of the book is, is living for God, but the section that—or, excuse me—yes, uh, living, living for God, but the, the, this section we're in has to do with suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ. But part of being willing to suffer is being willing to serve others because as you serve others, as you live for others, you make sacrifices. You do things that aren't always convenient or comfortable. Things like missions trips or volunteering or outreach, local outreach, church ministry. And you know what happens is that When you do those things, there is a great temptation to think that you're going to receive something, and you will receive a blessing, you will, but oftentimes what happens is you you may suffer for helping somebody. It may cost you something. You may need to make a sacrifice. So along the lines of the theme of suffering in Christ, we're now talking about being willing to serve one another, and as it relates to elders, leaders in the church— It is very important that if you're going to take a leadership position in the church, even if you're not the pastor of the church, or even an assistant pastor or an administrator, if you're going to take a leadership position in the church, you you have to know that it's going to cost you something. You're serving Christ, but serving people oftentimes can become difficult. At times, overly dramatic, challenging, challenging. And when we, when we make ourselves available to serve others, you have to go in with an idea and understanding that, look, this may come at your expense, but you're doing this service as you're called by God, for God, not for yourself. So with that as an introduction, let's pray, and then we'll look at how elders are called to serve the saints in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and as we look at leadership this evening, and and elders, and pastors, and those that lead us, may we understand, may we appreciate the great calling and the difficulties associated with serving your people in this way, but may we also be given a guide, an example to follow, especially for those of us in leadership positions in the church. May we be given an understanding, and, and for all of us, may we be able to look to our leaders and see these character traits, these spiritual gifts in and through their lives that we might see you be glorified in and through the lives of our leaders and through our own lives. Lord, do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've said, the elders are called to serve the saints. You hear what I said? The elders, the leaders are called to serve the saints. They're called to serve those within the body of Christ. That should be enough. That should be enough to just say, look... Servant leadership is the only form of Christian leadership that Jesus ever exemplified or taught. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but, to, uh, but excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark ten forty five. That truth should be the only example that we follow when we are in positions of leadership in the church, a servant leader. If you look at Moses in the Old Testament, he was a servant leader. If you look at any of the true prophets or, or leaders in Israel throughout the entire Old Covenant, you'll know that those that were called by God served the people. In the New Testament, not only Jesus, but the apostles and the disciples, the deacons, those within the church, the missionaries, they all serve the people. So let me ask you a question where did anyone ever get the idea that you could be a leader in the body of Christ and not serve others? I'm not sure where they got that idea from. But as we've seen through the centuries, there are many church denominations and churches where the leaders, whether they be bishops, cardinals, or popes, are treated like royalty. I mean, kings. (laughs) I don't understand that. I don't really understand where in God's word, you could ever justify anything but servant leadership. So now let's talk about this because Peter is writing in the first century church, appealing to the elders of the church in verse 1 when he says, to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now remember, Peter was probably one of, if not the, first elder in the church. He wasn't the only, but he was one of the first elders in the church. Remember that it's true that Jesus sort of appointed Peter to be the leader of the apostles and the disciples. Later on, John took a prominent position. James, the the brother of our Lord, took a prominent position in the church in Jerusalem. Other apostles came along and took positions of leadership, all of them servants, but you can easily say that Peter was, while not the first pope, he was actually the first elder or leader in the church, the body of Christ, at least one of the very first leaders. So getting his advice and counsel on the subject of church leadership is extremely valuable. Paul's as well, but Peter, especially Peter, as he talks to the elders in the church, appealing to them as a fellow elder, he makes it clear that elders were those that were called to lead but also serve those within the church. Now, the word elder in Greek is the word presbyteros. It's where the Presbyterian church gets its name because there are many forms of church government within the body of Christ. The Presbyterian church has its elders lead the church. Not just one pastor, but leaders who are elders lead the church. So in a typical Presbyterian church, you'll have a board of elders, or deacons of some sort, but board of elders, and they make the decisions. Oftentimes, they'll hire the pastor, and uh, they really do run the church. So hence the name Presbyterians. But that's the word for elder here, a presbyter, an elder. It really basically means someone who's a little older, someone of a certain age. Those who presided over the churches in the New Testament were typically those who were a little older than everyone else. Now, that can certainly mean those who are a little older in Christ, but more than likely, it really had to do with those who were the, that were a little older in age. I think we all know that with age comes experience and comes maturity, and in many cases, most of the time, some wisdom, you hope. And uh, I was saying to a group of elders in the church, when I say elders here, they're older gentlemen who on Sunday sit in that area right over there. I came over to greet them about a week or two ago, and uh, they were sitting talking, and I said, hey guys, I'm, I'm, I'm ge- getting ready to join your club, because they all have, you know, gray hair, and as more and more grays come in on the side of my, my head, uh, I said, I'm getting closer, pretty soon I'll be able to join the club. Gray hair, as we're talking about it today, is is a sign of age. But in the scriptures, it talks about gray hair being a sign of wisdom. And that's simply... Was that an amen? Uh, I mean, you you might as well get something for the gray hairs. You earn them, typically, right? Um, But you see, wisdom comes with age. You hope. You'd hope. And gray hair shows age. Therefore, in the scriptures, it talks about wisdom being associated with graying hair. But we do know that as we mature in Christ, as we become elders, whether men or women, we know that we've learned a few things, experienced a few things, maybe have some counsel and some wisdom to share. And so those were the types of people that were put in positions of leadership as elders in the church. The appointing of elders was a practice that was borrowed from ancient Judaism. If you go back to Numbers chapter 11, this was a common practice within Judaism. It became a common practice within the early church. Now, I will tell you that uh, in our fellowship, because we are a local body of believers, we are not a denomination, while we are a part of an affiliation with Calvary Chapel, uh, we are not governed externally. We're governed completely locally. Uh, We have two different types of elders. Uh, We have one group of elders who are called trustees And they oversee the finances of the church and make some of the more legal or corporate decisions. I am accountable to that group of elders. And uh, they are my accountability. And uh, we have rules for the government of this church. But they are the ones that sort of oversee that part of the church. Uh, They're called, again, trustees. And then we have elders or leaders or ministry directors, which includes pastors, administrators, and as I've said, uh, leaders of ministry, and they're the elders or leaders that actually serve, directly serve, the body of Christ. So whether they're serving the children or the women or the men or serving you by setting things up and taking care of facilities or teaching the word, whatever it is they're called to do, that would be the ministry director's Uh, the spiritual elders in the church. So we actually have two different types of elders, and uh, other than myself, there's no one that serves on both of those two boards, okay? So there's a lot of accountability there, and it it takes two different groups of people with different skills to focus on different aspects of church leadership. One is very practical, and one is more spiritual, but having said that, it's nice for me to have two separate groups of people that I work with uh, who care greatly for the brothers and sisters in the church, and serve them according to their gifts. So I'm very fortunate, and we all are very fortunate, for all those that serve us in that way. But as I've said, this was a practice borrowed from ancient Judaism. It continued in the church. And by the way, rulers uh, were usually selected by the people from the elderly men in ancient times. That was a, a very common practice even outside the church. So hence the term presbyter or elder. Now, the term bishop, uh, which is the, the term uh, or the Greek word episkopos, which is where we get the term for the Episcopal Church from, because other like the Presbyterian churches led by elders, the Episcopal Church was and is led by bishops, hence the term episcopal, uh, not by elders. So in that case, while there may be elders it is the bishop who oversees the church and makes the decisions. It's a little bit more centralized in terms of its church government. But the term bishop, elders, presbyters, they're all used interchangeably in the New Testament. So whether you call the leader or one of the leaders in the church an elder, a bishop, it doesn't really matter. The position, the job description is the same, okay? Now, Here, what Peter wants him to understand, he's appealing to them, those that have these positions in the church, but he appeals to them as a witness of Christ's sufferings. Why is that important? Remember, we're we're within this section of the book where the theme is suffering in Christ. So he's saying, look, I saw Christ's sufferings up front. Not just Christ's sufferings on the cross, not just his sufferings as he was being crucified, but the suffering that he experienced all throughout his ministry as he served others. In fact, he suffered on the cross because he was serving us. And as human beings, we are served by his death on the cross. So keep this in mind. That's our example. We don't follow the example of a man or a group of men or women. We follow Christ's example. And so he says, look, I was a witness of Christ's suffering, says it that way a witness of Christ's sufferings and the one who will also and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed uh, that's a reference to christ's example he, he suffered in this life but was raised to life and experienced the glory that we will all experience and that Peter experienced uh, when we pass from this life into the next and so that's his, the hope of the resurrection, uh, the truth of the crucifixion, and all that is bound up just in that opening as he shares with the elders in the church. He appeals to them as a witness. Now, when he says it that way, a witness, it's important to know that the Greek word is martyrs. You know that word. It's where we get the term in English martyr from. And it meant literally a spectator that could legally testify to the truth of something. It really means witness. But because those that could testify to Christ's sufferings and the resurrection oftentimes paid with their lives throughout the centuries, those that preached the gospel and taught the word of God paid with their lives many times, or at least were persecuted, if not put to death, the term witness became uh, synonymous with the term martyr as we know it someone who gives their lives. And it really defines someone that proved the genuineness of their faith by suffering a violent death. Those who were burned at the stake, those that were crucified, those that were put to death or beheaded for their faith, were called martyrs because they were witnesses. And Peter here says, a martyr, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Appealing to them as one in whom the glory of God will be revealed. Now, just to encourage you, even if you suffer in Christ, even if you live your life in such a way that it causes persecution by being faithful to God, the hope isn't that that persecution won't end in death or that you won't suffer in Christ. The hope is that when your sufferings are finished, you will experience the glory that has yet to be revealed. And that was Peter's hope and why he said, I will share in the glory to be revealed. There is a day that is coming where all those who have been persecuted and suffer for Christ have given their lives over the century, will experience the glory of Jesus Christ. Some are already experiencing God's glory in heaven, but the day will come where all those that have died and are raised to life will experience God's glory, will experience it here on this earth, having received bodies like Jesus's body when he rose from the dead. Amen? That's our hope. Your hope isn't that we'll win the next election. Your, your, your hope isn't that the persecution will stop or that they'll pass laws that favor your beliefs. The hope is that when all of your suffering has been completed and you pass from this life, because every one of us will one day pass on, when that happens, you will be in the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you yourself, all of us, will receive a glory that has yet to be revealed. Amen? That's our hope. So that's his opening just in verse 1, and now he begins to call the elders to pastor. It's interesting because we, we, we call the leaders in the church oftentimes pastors, and it just means shepherd. It's not a glorious term. It really bishop is an overseer deacon means a slave or a servant an elder just means someone who's a little older and a pastor means a shepherd these aren't terms that describe someone like a king or a monarch these are terms that describe a servant a shepherd wasn't a glamorous profession and it was a it was something that you did because maybe you didn't have any other skills <laughs> you watched over sheep And yet now we've sort of given this title and this position, such glory, a glory that it really doesn't have. The glory is in serving God. The glory is is yet to be revealed, but that term simply means shepherd. And by the way, he's telling the elders in the church to shepherd. Shepherd is also a verb. To shepherd, to serve, to watch over, to care for. So when we read these words in verses 2 through 3, be shepherds of God's flock. This is more about the job description than some glorious title. Be shepherds of God's flock, that is, under your care, serving as overseers. Now there we go, there's that term bishops, overseers. Not because you must, but because you were willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There's so much there, There's so much there that I just want to take the time and break it down, because this is the example that should be set by every church leader, but it should be set by us as well. Those of you who have families and young children, this is a great description for you to shepherd your flock. For those of you who are leading small groups or have ministry groups or teaching the children or leading a ministry here at the church, that that is a wonderful charge for you to follow, for all of us to follow. So he encourages these leaders, these elders, to be willing pastors. Willing pastors. Now let's talk about what that means. First, it means caring for the church as a shepherd. The reason the term poimen or pastor, the Greek word is poimen, but pastor was used is because everyone knew what a shepherd did. It wasn't complicated. They watched and cared for sheep. If I said to you, oh, do you want to hire a babysitter, you would recognize that a babysitter does what? Watches over a baby or young children. That's not a complicated description. It can be a challenging job, but it's not complicated. A shepherd watches over the flock of God, caring for the church as a shepherd cares for sheep. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's. in order to understand what a, what a pastor or a shepherd is supposed to do and what it means to shepherd the church, we have to know and understand what shepherds do. They feed and tend to sheep. So we're called to feed and tend to the church as a shepherd to a flock of sheep. Very simple, right? What does that mean, though? You know, when when you think about... Uh, feeding and tending to the church, it means a number of things. In fact, I'd like to look at five. First, it means to watch for enemies, trying to attack the sheep. Uh, one of the easiest ways to witness me getting a little upset is if someone tries to hurt one of the sheep. As a pastor called by God, a willing pastor, I can tell you that that's one of the ways you will invoke my ire. That is one of the ways you will see me not get in the flesh, but you will see me step out and be protective of the sheep if someone tries to harm someone within the body of Christ. We're called to watch for enemies trying to attack the sheep, and there are many enemies trying to attack the sheep. We're actually also not only called to watch, because if the the wolf were to come into the, the flock and you just sat there and watched, that wouldn't be enough. We're called to defend the sheep from attackers. We put ourselves in between the attacker and the sheep. Now, I'm not speaking metaphorically. Sometimes it comes down to putting yourself in a place of danger in order to protect others. And that just goes with the job. It's not something you have to think about. It's something you just do because it's what you're called to do. Have you ever noticed when you're caring for children, and maybe some of you haven't had that privilege and blessing, but if you're caring for children, if anything happens, you know it's it's amazing how your reflex will immediately cause you to protect that child, even if you have to throw yourself out in front of something to protect them. If, If you're holding a young child and you feel yourself losing your footing, you'll do what you have to do to protect the child even if it costs you a broken ankle. Whatever you need to do, if you have to fall, whatever, you're going you're to protect that child at all, at all costs. That's what it means to defend the sheep from attackers. Not just to watch, but to defend. It also means to heal the wounded and the sick sheep. And this is always a challenge for a shepherd. One of the sheep gets into trouble, becomes wounded, and maybe becomes ill. And the shepherd has to tend to that sheep and make sure that that sheep gets all the care it needs to get well. Well, that's certainly very true within the church. Jesus talks about the good shepherd, right? Leaving the 99 to go after the one. Sometimes you end up spending a lot of your time with those that are wounded. Those that are sick. Because that's what we're called to do. Some people get into the ministry and they'll say something silly like, Oh, I love pastoring, but just don't love having to deal with people. Now how silly that would be. It's like saying, Oh, I love being a shepherd. I just hate sheep. Can't stand being around sheep. So healing the wounded, and, and listen, if God chooses to physically heal, that's one thing, but we can bring healing through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of God's word, through care and comfort, direction, counsel, We do that. That's what it means to shepherd. It also means to find and save lost or trapped sheep. Because sheep have a habit of getting themselves lost or trapped in situations they can't get out of. And so the shepherd oftentimes has to go looking for the sheep. And once he finds them, free them from the trouble they've gotten themselves into. There are many times as a pastor we find ourselves out there looking for where someone has gotten to. You know, someone's gotten into trouble, they, they've gotten into some situation and you haven't seen them or they're just sort of lost, they've lost their way and the Lord will lay it upon our hearts and we have to call up and reach out to that person and say, hey bro, how, how are you doing? Where are you, where are you been? Everything okay? Haven't seen you in a while, how are things going? And sometimes it's, you find out someone is in a bad situation and you try to help them in a way where they can get out of it. These are all the things we do as leaders in the church, as pastors. But most of all, perhaps the most important thing, loving the sheep, caring for the sheep in that way, sharing your life and earning the trust of others. I think that's one of the mistakes a lot of pastors make. I've heard pastors actually say things like this. Well, we don't get too close to people. We keep our distance because you know, we want to sort of protect our position. I've, I've heard these things and I've corrected those who have said those things by saying, then you shouldn't be in the ministry. You shouldn't be a shepherd if you're not going to shepherd. And to shepherd means to love being with the sheep, to share your life with them, to earn their trust. That requires relationship. So if you're not good with relationship, you cannot be an effective pastor or leader in the church. It is all about relationships. So you have to and should want to spend time with others. Now what's sad is, and I'm just going to say this not to be critical, but just an observation, that many times the most well-known pastors, popular pastors, do the least amount of pastoring. It oftentimes happens that the ministry gets so, excuse me for saying it this way, quote-unquote big, that they don't have time for people. I don't understand that. I also don't understand churches that are governed in such a way where you have a teaching pastor and then everyone else does all the work of pastoring. Because, I don't know, but if you're teaching the Word of God, that that, that means you're a teacher, not a pastor. You probably shouldn't be called a pastor. You should probably be called a teacher, Oh, he does the teaching, we do the pastoring. At least I can understand that. But when someone just does the teaching in the administration and they don't do any real pastoring, they're not doing the work that Peter's talking about here. So yes, I do believe that no matter how large a church gets, and not that one man has to do it all, he certainly does the job with the help of many men and women within the church, But you can't tell me that you can actually think of yourself as a lead pastor or a senior pastor and not actually pastor and care for people. It doesn't work that way. So I'm not being critical of anyone in particular, but I do know what we're called to do because Peter makes that clear. You know, it's hard. It's not always easy. Uh, As I have mentored young men and not so young men over the years, I've, I've learned that you know, there are three disciplines that are oftentimes not taught within the church. Believe it or not, one of them is how to preach, how to teach God's word. And so that's one of the three things that I teach young men when I mentor them, how to preach, how to teach God's word, what to do in the pulpit, how do we do that? Because teaching and preaching the word is caring for the sheep. It's not as if it isn't. But it's not the kind of pastoring that we're talking about here that a shepherd does. The pastor-teacher teaches, but he also pastors. Here's the thing. That's one discipline. And sometimes in seminaries, individuals learn how to do that. I say sometimes. But I can absolutely tell you, after having had a 20-year career in the corporate world, that two things that many young ministers are never taught— are project management and people management. Having been a project and people manager, I can tell you I spend two-thirds of my mentoring time with those young men teaching them those very skills and those very things. Because managing people is part of being a leader and a pastor, and managing projects is a lot of the same type of people management, except you're trying to achieve a goal and accomplish something by helping people to do it. So those two skills, in addition to preaching and teaching, are essential in the church. And very few young men or women who come out of any type of Bible school or seminary know a thing about those, uh, those disciplines and those skills. And so very important apprenticeship skills that can be learned. But guess how they learn them? You learn them by apprenticing with a pastor who's willing to build a relationship with you and teach you those skills. So over the years, I've had the privilege to spend a lot of time with young men teaching them those skills, the things that I've learned, the things that I've been taught. So serving the church in this way means to rule or to govern over the church by patiently leading. You do this patiently. You you can't be, you know, can you imagine a shepherd out there screaming at sheep, hitting the sheep with the staff, chasing them around? The sheep would rather deal with the wolf than deal with that kind of shepherd, I mean, to nourish and cherish the church by sensitively caring for people is what a pastor's called to do. Now, he also says not only to serve the the church as a shepherd or care for the church, as it says here, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. He also says serve as overseers. Now, this is a different skill set. This is different than pastoring, but it's a part of being a pastor. It's like being a shepherd, but it's just a little different. Because serving the church as an overseer means this. The word literally means to look upon, to inspect, to oversee, to look after and care for the church as a group. Pastors pastor individuals, groups of individuals. You you can't pastor a hundred people at once. You pastor individuals. But you can oversee a group of individuals. This is more of the administrative side of being a pastor or a leader. And he's being told here, or this group of elders are being told by Peter, that they should serve the church as an overseer in this way. Look after and care for the church. It means to look carefully at the church, beware, uh, watch over, and protect the church as, as a group. So we're called to minister to individuals, but watch over the group as a whole. Are you with me? That's what that means. But notice he also says this, serving as overseers not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. I don't think anybody should ever serve in the church thinking they have to against their own will. I have seen it a hundred times if I've seen it once. Someone volunteers for something. Maybe it's facilities, maybe it's operations, maybe it's Sunday school. And, you know, at first they they think, well, you know, I want to serve the Lord. I want to serve the body. And this is a way that I can do that. And they sign up and, you know, they decide, oh, I'm going to serve in the nursery. So they serve in the nursery. And then every week they end up serving in the nursery because someone doesn't show up. We don't do this here. Okay. I just want to say we don't do this here. Uh, But every week comes around, somebody's sick, someone can't make it. So eight weeks go by, 10 weeks go by. And that very willing servant has now not been in the church service for several months and they quit and I don't blame them because at first they were willing to serve but now the situation's sort of been abusive and they've been taken advantage of and now they're not willing to serve and oftentimes people are not comfortable saying look I'll serve once a month like I originally said I would but please don't ask me to serve more so what they do is they just quit or they stop coming to church because they don't want the conflict. They, they don't want to have that conversation. It's too difficult for them. I've seen it over and over again, which is why we only ask our servants in Sunday school, generally just about any ministry, uh, to serve any ministry, especially if you're going to be out of the service, like Sunday school. Uh, we only ask you to do that once a month. Now, every once in a while, there'll be a fifth Sunday, and so once a year, we may ask you to do it twice that month. If you can, if you can't, that's fine. But generally, it's just once a month, and that's for a reason. We want you to continue to be willing and wanting to do it. We don't want to burn you out. Now, sometimes in ministries uh, like worship, praise and worship ministries and music ministries, you'll see the same people up here you know, a couple times a month. Well, they're not missing out on anything. They're leading worship, and then they sit in the congregation. But especially those ministries where you're called to be outside of the main service for that Sunday, it's vitally important that we don't burn people out. Someone was willing to volunteer. Don't make them unwilling to serve. So that's a very important aspect to this. And elders should, church, should, should serve the church willingly because they want to. I always say it this way. We, we get to. We don't got to. We get to. We don't got to. If you'll forgive the English or lack of English there. So, you you see, what I want you to understand is that should be your heart. And we say this all the time. If you ever find yourself serving and you feel like you got to, stop, please. Or communicate with us. Let us know. Because if you're not serving willingly, you're not doing anyone any favors. So you should do so, that is serve, and especially the leaders in the church, by your own volition, your own desire to do the will of God because it is your will to do so. You're doing God's will, but it's also your will. If you do God's will, but it's against your own will, you're not doing anybody any favors. Because you're going to do it with a bad attitude anyway. So we do the will of God because it is our will to do so as well. And that's what we're told, not because you must, but because you are willing. So the next time someone says, well, you have to, you can say, well, I'm willing to. I don't have to, and I'm willing to serve once a month. Not everybody's comfortable having that conversation, but... There's your scripture verse if you're in need of something supporting that position. Now, we get to the next thing here. After encouraging the leaders in the church to be willing pastors, which is what we've been talking about, shepherds over the flock, he then cautions them not to be motivated by wealth. Now, this is really interesting because if we've seen anything in the last hundred years within the church, maybe even earlier, maybe going back 2,000 years that so often throughout the history of the corruption of the church, this is exactly why men and women get involved in ministry. Because it's lucrative. They're not getting involved in ministry because they want to serve people. They're getting involved in ministry because they can make money doing it. I can tell you, before I was a Christian, one of the things that definitely turned me off to Bible-believing churches in particular, was so many of them were led by men and women who were enormously wealthy and made it all about money. And they oftentimes begged for money. When I saw that, I wanted nothing to do with the church. In fact, I remember growing up in the Episcopal Church, and I always felt uncomfortable with the passing of the plate because it was just awkward. It didn't feel right. Which is why, as a pastor and and all of our leaders here in the church, uh, we hold to that idea that we put a box in the back and you give as you're willing and as the Lord leads. That's why you'll never be passed a plate here at Calvary Chapel or be asked to give. There's a reason for that. You should be willing to give. You shouldn't be forced to give or pressured to give. But so many leaders within the churches over the centuries have made it all about money. You've seen it. I mean, most of those that do are crooks, corrupt, morally and financially corrupt. And it's sad because we're told here, Peter makes it clear when he says it here, not greedy for money in verse 2, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. So if you are aware of someone in ministry who's, greedy for money but not eager to serve, uh, you really can't call them a spirit-led leader. You really can't identify them as a pastor and an overseer according to God's Word. Actually, you can call them out as apostate. That basically means they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're corrupt. They're not serving God. They're serving themselves. So he cautions them, don't be motivated by wealth. One of the best ways to not be motivated by wealth as a pastor is to receive a salary that, that meets your needs, okay? N- n- not exceeds your needs, but meets your needs so that you're not always worried about paying the bills or anything, uh, and not have to think about money at all, and not be in a position where, like, for example, if more people come to the church, you get more money. There are some churches that pay their pastors based on the number of people. I don't understand that. I really don't. So you preach a message, right? And so if there's 100 people out there, I guess you get one salary. If there's 200, you get more. That becomes a motivator for greed. Uh, That becomes the wrong kind of motivator. Now, you might be saying, well, a large church requires a pastor to do more. How many hours are there in a day? Hire more pastors, okay? It's not about money. And different pastors, given their family size have different needs. But I get very concerned when I see a pastor who's living well above the means of everyone in the church by several fold. You know, I've been very vocal over the years about how much I don't think a pastor should make. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really feel very strongly, you know, people are making sacrifices, offerings of worship by giving out of their abundance, or sometimes out of their want, being generous in doing so. And so for us within the church to mismanage the money or to pay people too much money is just wrong. I'm offended by it. I don't like to see it. I also have seen times where they don't pay pastors enough, and that's not right either. But in particular, not greedy for money means not motivated by wealth, serving the church in order to help others and not to help yourself. Serving the church, desiring only the reward that being a blessing brings. This is why I don't charge for memorial services or weddings, okay? There are pastors that do. I don't understand that, but that's between them and God. People will often say, well, how much do you charge to do a wedding? I said, "The same I charge to do a funeral. Nothing. I receive a salary. I'm called to be a pastor. I do these things because I'm called to serve the sheep, to care for the flock part of my job description. I typically don't do it outside the church because that's not part of my job description. For those within the church, for your family members, if you need me or any of our pastors, we're here for you. Okay. In verse 3, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That's great. That, That is wonderful because what that's telling us is Peter is cautioning them not to be motivated by power. Not just wealth, but power. And so many people in positions of leadership are corrupted, not just by wealth, but power. That is, their influence, their ability to, to motivate people, but not only motivate, but sometimes manipulate people, to rule over people, to control people. There was a movement in the 70s called the Shepherding Movement. And it was a cult. where the the shepherds told people who they could marry and whether they could go on vacation and what job they could take. It's ridiculous. That led to being told you need to drink the Kool-Aid. Sadly. We all remember that, those of you who lived through the 70s. So, understand, he's cautioning them not to be motivated by by power. Not abusing your authority, because as a pastor, as a leader in the church, you're given authority spiritual authority, but not abusing your authority over others by demanding their subjection. That's what it means to lord over. Well, I'm in charge. I'm telling you, I'm the pastor of the church. This is what you need to do. That kind of thing. Power trip. We all know what it looks like. In many ways, this is more dangerous than greed. God has entrusted leaders with the welfare and well-being of those within the church. He's entrusted us as leaders with the welfare and well-being of others and our position has been assigned to us it's not earned by us it's assigned to us we didn't earn this position we're given this position by God to glorify him and serve his people and we'll be held accountable for how we serve those that are in our charge we're accountable to God amen but we're accountable here and now as well so he's telling them don't abuse your authority don't be motivated by wealth But be a good example to others. Now, this is interesting because the word in Greek, for example, it really means a figure formed by a blower, an impression. That is, if you were to take a stamp and put it on wood or leather and use a hammer and hit that stamp, it would leave an impression on the surface of the leather or on a surface of the wax or on the surface of the wood or the metal. That's the word for example. Leave a lasting impression. Leave a lasting impression. Live a life worthy of imitation. Strive to be a pattern of conformity that others can follow. That's what Peter is telling them here. Finally, in verse 4, we'll close with this. He encourages them because he says, And when the chief shepherd, now notice, you may be a shepherd, but there's a chief shepherd, everybody's got a boss. There's a chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is quite interesting. Peter calls the elders of the church to look for God's blessings. Money should never be a motivator. Power should never be a motivator. But God's blessings should. The blessings of the Lord. That's why we within the ministry serve others. To be blessed. To be a blessing. But to receive God's blessing. We're looking to be blessed by God. We want to be blessed by God so that we can bless others. So he encourages them to look to Jesus, who's the chief shepherd, to reward them for their labors. Don't look to the people. Don't look to others to compensate you for your service. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the one that will reward you appropriately. He's the one that will care for your needs, meet your needs, provide you with all you need to do what he's called you to do. Christ is the head shepherd. You're an under-shepherd if you're a leader. You're an under-shepherd in subjection to him. Remember that. And you'll give an account to him for how you have shepherded his flock. You and I, we in leadership, should give little or no concern to the judgment of anyone else. Only to the authority of Jesus Christ. Finally, he encourages them to look. To receive their eternal reward when Christ appears for his church. See, that's when you get compensated. I mean, when you say things like, well, I need to be compensated. Yeah, you do. And you will be when Christ returns. That's what we're looking for. The compensation of Christ when he returns in glory. And that reward, as we talked about, looking to receive the eternal reward when Christ appears for his church. That reward is likened to the laurel wreath given to the victor in the athletic games. You've all seen this, I'm sure. In the early athletic games in Greek and Roman culture, they didn't receive medals like a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal. They received a wreath, and they wore the wreath. It was the victor's crown. It was made of laurel wreaths. But the laurel wreaths would fade. The leaves would fade. They'd dry out. They didn't last forever. And that, that's what he refers to when he says, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So in contrast to the crown of glory that the victors received in the athletic games, this crown of glory will never fade away. See, unlike the laurel wreath, this reward will never perish, spoil, or fade. That's what we're being encouraged that's, that, to do that, that's, that's our, our motivation and why we serve as leaders in the church. And it's interesting because for this reason, Peter, when he's, when he's using this analogy, he uses a word, amarantinos. It's a Greek word that means a wreath that's composed of amaranth. Now it's interesting because when he says a crown that will never fade away, he's saying that's a crown of amaranth as, a repo, as opposed to a crown of of laurel wreaths. Now, I don't know much about plants, but I know this. Those are two different leaves, two different plants. Why would he say that? Well, though they gave the victors a crown of laurel wreaths, that was the crown of glory he refers to, the crown of amaranth that he, he compares it to didn't wither or fade. A wreath of amaranth flowers never faded. It, it didn't wither. Once plucked, it was easily revived if moistened with water. And so he's making the point that this reward will never fade away. The amaranth became a symbol of perpetuity and immortality because it was superior to the laurel wreath. So, what is motivating you? And you may say, well, Pastor Tim, I'm not a leader, I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor. Oh, maybe maybe you're not, maybe you're not. But if you have any influence over anyone in any ministry, at any time, you can take this wonderful encouragement and apply it to your heart. And if you are called to ministry and to lead others, whether it be a home Bible study or a Sunday school class, this is some of the best counsel you can receive on the subject of serving others in the entire Bible. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for encouraging us and directing us and showing us how to serve others showing us that we need to be willing to serve others and showing us how to serve others and what should motivate us and helping us to look to you to reward us for our sacrifices and our suffering and not to expect or want others to compensate us in any way, shape, or form. Keep our hearts pure, Lord. As leaders, keep us focused in on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to put that joy before us, the joy of serving others. That was the joy that was set before you such that you endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy motivated you to die on the cross for our sins. May the joy of knowing that we're pleasing you and serving others and blessing others be sufficient to compensate us for all that we do for your glory. Oh Lord, we ask you to do this work, and as we preach your word, As we share with others, may our motivation be to share the truth of your gospel with them. Not because we get anything from it, but because we know that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's our heart, to share the truth of your gospel message with all those that need to hear it. The truth that you came and died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and are coming again to judge the living and the dead. The truth that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray for anyone listening to this message tonight or at any later date who hasn't made that decision that they would at this very moment make the decision to give their hearts to you to believe in your sacrifice on the cross as payment for their sins and your resurrection from the dead as proof positive that you have promised newness of life, eternal life to all those that put their faith and trust in you. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.